Apache Airflow is a system for scheduling and monitoring workflows for data engineering. Airflow can be used to schedule ETL jobs, machine learning work, and script execution. Airflow also gives a developer a high-level view into the graph of dependencies for their data pipelines. Chaim Turkel is a back-end data architect at Tikal. He joins the show to discuss a case study of using Airflow to re-architect the data engineering workflow of a complex financial application. We discussed the problems that Airflow solves and the process of porting existing workflows to Airflow. Before we get started, I want to mention a few updates from Software Engineering Daily Land. I'll be attending a few conferences in the near future. Datadog Dash, July 16th and 17th in New York City and the Open Core Summit, September 19th and 20th in San Francisco. Also, we've got a new Software Daily app for iOS. It includes all 1,000 of our old episodes, as well as related links, greatest hits, and topics. You can comment on our episodes, you can have discussions with other members of the community, and you can become a paid subscriber for ad-free episodes at softwareengineeringdaily.com slash subscribe. Chaim Turkle, you are a back-end data architect at Tikal. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you. Welcome to you, too. So I just got back from a talk uh, that you were giving about Airflow, and I thought it would make for a great podcast. And so at the beginning of the talk, you were evaluating a postmortem of a project that you worked on. And this project started out with a application that had been wired together from a bunch of different applications, a bunch of different services, mostly on Google Cloud. And the gist of it was that after wiring together all of these different serverless services, the company that you were working with, the project that you were working with, began to lose sight of the bigger picture of what they were working on. Give me the the overview of this project that you were working on when you first encountered it. Um, the project, actually, it's a very interesting evolution of what happened, and I think it happens to a lot of startups, that they start using all sorts of technologies and without thinking for actually the long run. So this specific project is a company called Behalf, where they do financing and help smaller companies finance themselves and their customers. And they decided to use Google as their main platform, where the first issue there was BigQuery. So they decided they want to use BigQuery as their major platform for all the data analytics. And from there, they started evolving their startup. So they start adding all sorts of technologies as needed. So for instance, they added AppScripts. AppScripts is another technology of Google, which is very easy to use. You write a few JavaScripts. The JavaScripts, you add a few Crohn's, and they start working. Now, it actually brings me the end product that I want, but there's no visibility in the process. So I have to start thinking, wait a minute, this crone runs once every hour, so now I need to create another one every hour and a half so that I know the first one finished before I write my next one. And then I have this product that evolves because I keep on adding more and more tasks on crones, but I have no idea what's really happening. And the biggest issue was when one of them fails. I have a failure, I fix it, but now what did I miss? What other processes in the whole flow 
did I miss? And I don't know how that I need to rerun them in order to fix because of my previous data that was missing. And when you're talking about cron jobs, these are scripts that are written in Python or Node, and they're just doing random operations at certain intervals, maybe like a couple every couple hours or every three days or every couple weeks. Is that what you would define as a cron job? A cron job is a scheduling. And I think the whole area of crons are a bit problematic. Even Google itself has a lot of solutions for how to run crons. In the specific ones, they called it triggers. They didn't call it crons, but it's identical to a cron. You give it the name of your Java function, and you say, I want it to run every Sunday at 8 o'clock, or every three hours, or every hour and a half, and then it triggers your process or your specific function that you wrote. And in this application, what were the responsibilities of the cron job? How mission critical were these cron jobs? So part of the evolution, I believe, they thought at the beginning it wasn't mission critical, and therefore they were very lax with it. And as the product evolved, they figured out, wait a minute, this is very mission critical. We were using it to figure out, again, behalf is actually something similar to a bank. They give out money, and it's very important that all my data is up-to-date and direct. So the project that I started on was actually considered not production, but offline analysis. And very quickly, we figured out that, no, it's production grade. And if it falls down, we need to know immediately. Because we're using all the money to decide how much money to give back or how much loans that we have to take out. We used to do all these batch processes dependent on other data. And one day it fell. It stopped working. And the next morning I came in hysterical. It's not working. We're in big trouble. And I was, but we're not production. We're just some batch line. And then it synced in. Everybody understood, no, this is really production, and we have to be production. Sorry, to, I don't know how specific you can get into this, but like these batch jobs were determining whether the company had to borrow money from a bank, for example. So they were, they were, these were like life and death, how much money is in our bank situations? The way... A lot of financing companies, you take money and then you give it out to other people. Right. So I need to know which of my clients owe me money and I need to balance out my accounts every so often and the regulations that I have to stand by. So I have to show that I'm up to standard of how much money I have in my bank account as opposed to how much I'm allowed to give out. These are all sorts of standards that I have to do. And I have to upload also my statements for somebody to validate and say, yes, we're working according to regulation. Now, you could imagine a world in the distant future where every time there's a transaction, for example, every time I issue a loan to a customer or I give out money in some kind of fintech application, it would update all of the different records, it would update the whatever regulatory compliance system is overseeing my uh, incremental issuance process. But we are living in a time where that is not yet possible. We have to do these incremental updates to, to one part of our application, and then we might have to do this batch job to you know, bring the holistic view into uh, into resolution across our entire application. I believe this used to be called the Lambda architecture. Is, is that correct? You brought up a lot of things, yes. To begin with, batch is today the new bad word to use. <laughs> we want to go to streaming. And it's very interesting. Lambda architecture, in my opinion, is in the past. We want to get rid of it. 
and Google. Keep dreaming. <laughs> no, there's already a product, Apache Beam. I don't know if you've heard of it. Yeah, I have, yes. Apache Beam on their posts, they're out to kill the Lambda architecture. That's what their mission is. And once we move to streaming, it is possible. It's a switch in our mind of how to use the data and how to process the data. But Apache Beam is pushing very hard to get rid of the Lambda architecture. I mean, Kafka's been trying to kill the Lambda architecture for a long time, right? The, oh, JCraft's with the Kappa architecture. We're killing the Lambda architecture. Isn't the Lambda architecture just a byproduct of, like, relativity? You know, it's just like you've got one area of the world that updates, and it takes a while for the rest of the world to notice that that update has occurred. The problem is technology of how to know about my late data. The biggest problem, and that's why they invented the Lambda architecture, is if I have data that came in late, I now need to retroactively fix it. And Apache Beam has given us an API to do it. I've even read, if I remember correctly, that even Kafka is thinking of uh, adopting the Beam interface wow. to help them solve part of those issues. I, I, you know, I was such a Beam skeptic at first. I didn't understand what they were trying to do. Maybe I guess I still don't understand what they're trying to do exactly. I, I know you have uh, you have Apache Beam, which is uh, actually okay. I'm just going to ask you: describe to me what Apache Beam. And by the way, we're getting very far from Airflow. <laughs> yes. We will return to Airflow eventually, but let's let's go through the uh, data engineering buzzwords one at a time. So explain to me what Apache Beam is and why it's serious or why it's significant. So Apache Beam started in Google as Dataflow of Google, and then they put it on the market as an open source. And whoever hasn't re read, I'm very advanced that you should read their two articles, 101 streaming and 102 streaming. The idea behind Apache Beam was, I want a vision how we should do streaming. So if we look at Spark or Flink or any of the other platforms that are out there, they give you a platform and the platform slowly evolved according to the needs of the market. Apache Beam said, let's stop. Let me think what I want. What are the issues? The issues are I have an event that happens. There's always two time bases on every event. There's process time. There's event time. Nobody put that on the table until Apache Beam. Everybody knew it, and they knew that's an issue we need to somehow deal with. Apache Beam put it on the table. They said there are two times. In the API, in the SDK that I give you, you can reference either one. You can decide which one you want to reference. And of course, the byproduct of the difference between the two is how do I deal with late data? When do I trigger my windows? Do I trigger my windows on a database, on a time base, or on late database? And they started inventing abstractions. And they said, let me give you a vision of how we want the streaming to work. And even if Apache Beam does not succeed, they're pushing the whole market. They're forcing the market to rethink and re-put in all these actual attributes in their system and they're changing everybody. So even if they specifically don't succeed, I think they're gonna change everything. When Apache Beam came out, it was, uh, the way I understood it was, it was a way for other streaming frameworks to write ways for the da their data pipelines to be translated. I'm sorry, it was a, w it was a way for any beam compliant definition 
to potentially be compiled into Spark or Flink or Storm or Dataflow, except Dataflow is proprietary or still is proprietary. So it was a bit, that this is what always confused me about it is Beam is this open way for you to compile any any data pipeline into one of these respective streaming backends, but you ultimately are in many cases going to want to run it on Google Dataflow, even though it's proprietary. Although I guess that's because it's it's not because Google wants to lock you into their proprietary system. It's probably because Dataflow itself is too tightly coupled to Google infrastructure, so they haven't been able to open source it yet. So this is eventually going to become an open source thing, right? The way I understand it, Beam has done a few things. In addition to what I described of the vision of how streaming should work, they've also decided to do another level of abstraction. So in order for them to be relevant, they could have just done data flow, and then they wouldn't have been relevant because people will say, I don't want data flow. I'm Spark. So they decided to do another layer of abstraction and say, we'll give you an SDK, some DSL language. You write in, in the language that you think of streaming, and we will then write runners, which will run it on the proper platform. They've now taken it to the next level. And they've said, wait a minute, I want another abstraction. The current SDK was in Java. They say, wait, why Java? And Python was also added early on. But now they've said, no, we want to take it totally different. You're a Go shop? Write it in Go. We will then translate your Go to our layer intermediate and run it on Spark. Or maybe you're going to run, write it in Java SDK and run it on Go. But the idea in any of these cases is that you're writing it in Beam. You're writing it in the Beam concepts, and then you will choose the runner according to your performance issues or according to your, do you need it on-premise, on the cloud solution. The idea is you write your abstract thinking in the language that you're used to and in the Beam concept and then the second stage is, okay, now where do I need to run it? And, sorry, so there are frameworks for doing this in Go and Python and Java and everything? And you, can, yes. you, you, have, the, you have the Beam idioms in all of these different frameworks? And they're adding more and more frameworks that I can write the Beam concepts. Cool. Bringing this back to the application that you were working on at this, uh, this fintech company, so give me a, a little bit more of a description in terms of how this fintech company had wound up in a situation where it had the sprawl of tools and this problem with these uh, essentially a Lambda architecture? I think, again, I, I, sh I don't want to sound that I'm so much against serverless because I'm not. It's a matter of how you use the tool. But the way the tools, the way that they're selling it so aggressively, they want you to get into it, they make it too easy. So the problem is, is you're like, okay, I need some sort of function to do it. And within a few minutes, Google will say, no problem. Here, just write your function here and it works. And it does work. But then you start hitting the limitations. In App Script specifically, a specific script cannot run for more than six minutes. So if you have a long process, you're stuck. The overall time of all your scripts, depending on your projects, can't pass a certain amount of hours. You start hitting all these limitations but you started out because it was so easy. We needed monitoring. So the CTO said, no problem, Google Spreadsheets. You can write um, JavaScript behind it, connects to BigQuery, reads the tables. Within a few minutes, he had a spreadsheet up and running with information. But he was using spreadsheets for monitoring? Google Spreadsheets for monitoring. That's Why? strange. Because it's so easy to do. <laughs> that was the problem. 
it was too easy. And then at one point, you're like, I've lost everything. I don't know where anything is because I did it very quickly. I didn't put any much thought into it of who's going to use this, how are we going to use it, how are we going to scale. These are issues that startups at the beginning don't think, which is okay. It's legitimate. But at a certain stage and scale, you have to rethink and then find the proper solution. How old was this company? This company is three years old. Three years old. Okay, wow. So they're like, are they entirely quote-unquote serverless, or do they have servers running for any back, any significant applications? They have. They have a lot of servers. The company, I would say, is divided between the R&D, which is all on Amazon, mm-hmm. and they have microservices and Java and right. Spring and the whole f- stack, and then there's the BI area. Right. The BI area and the machine learning, they're all sitting on Google with the BigQuery. I have seen that architecture in many different places where people are like, all right, well... We trust Amazon as the place to run our business logic, but the Google APIs for data processing are so amazing that we want to have this dual cloud set up. Dual cloud is very difficult, but at least on the BigQuery, I haven't actually worked with Redshift. I've read about it. From what I understand, it doesn't really compare to BigQuery. The ease of BigQuery and the performance of BigQuery is just unthinkable. You just throw at it as much data as you want. You run your queries. It'll give you an answer. It's not real time. It's not Postgres. But you'll get an answer, and you don't have to think about it. You don't have to think about how many machines I have. I don't have to manage my machines. I just put the data in. That's it. And it connects to Google Sheets. And it connects to Google Sheets. (laughs) So actually, can you help me understand that a little bit more? You said they are doing monitoring with Google Sheets. What does that mean? That means you have a sheet. One column is the name of the table that I need to synchronize from some external source. I then do a select on that table for max time. I see when was the last time it was synchronized. And with formulas in Google Sheets, I compare it to the current time. And if there's a a discrepancy of an hour or half hour, depends what we decide, there's another column that says to which email send it. And then in JavaScript behind the Google Sheet, you iterate over the the rows in the spreadsheet, and any discrepancy, you send an email with Google Apps. So an example of a discrepancy, this would be like financial discrepancies. Not necessarily. The discrepancies here is data synchronization. We have a lot of external sources whether it's Salesforce, MongoDB, Postgres, and we have the data flow, Google Beam, that we use to import and ingest all these data. Now, if the Google flow is down, not because of Google, but because we are not running it, currently we're in batch mode, not streaming, so we have to run every half hour. And if for whatever reason something got stuck, my data is not being updated, and I need to know that as fast as possible. Interesting. So they were basically using the spreadsheet as, I see, as monitoring, as a way to identify data discrepancies and then kick off an email to an admin. Basically, the admin would yes. have to go in and, and solve it. Okay. So uh, I'll tee you up. What is wrong with this process? <laughs> it's not managed. I think that's the main word. It's just simply not managed. There is no software engineering practices in this the way it was built. It took me a while to actually put my finger on what bothered me the most, 
But I think that was the, the biggest issue. On the production side, it's the management. We don't know what's really happening. So even if my spreadsheet tells me, look, this failed, I'm like, okay, it failed. Now what? So it's a problem of the ingest. Okay, I fixed my ingest. What does it apply to? In which other tasks now do I have to fix because I haven't been ingesting for two hours? I have to try to figure out the whole flow, which is Chrome-based in, I don't even know which systems all the time. So we're not managing it. And our code base is not, there's no software architecture, classical paradigmas. I don't have Git. None of my code is in source control. It's inside these spreadsheets of Google, inside app scripts. I want to manage it. I need versioning. How do I know if I make a fix so my spreadsheet has a bug? So you go in and you fix it. You think you fixed it, but you broke something else. So there's no unit testing. There's none of the standard paradigmas that we know as software engineers. So let's say I am one of these admins. I get an email from the spreadsheet system. What is my life like for the next hour and a half or two hours? Like, what am I doing? You're sending out a lot of slacks and what's up. Please help. Please help. Please help. <laughs> to who? To me. <laughs> okay. Why doesn't the spreadsheet do that? No. Uh, so, okay. So to explain. So then what do you have to do? What do you, how are you debugging the system when you get one of these emails? I'm trying to figure out which system. Again, we started at one point when we figured out it was too much for me to handle. So we started writing these documents. If this happens, go to here. If that happens, go to there. It might have been the Google App Engine because I was deploying Dataflow with Google App Engine. So maybe my Google App Engine stopped working. Or maybe the deployment that I did in Google Dataflow, something got stuck there. And therefore, when I run my batch jobs, I make sure that there are no I don't have two of them running at the same time. So if one job got stuck for whatever reason, I'm not going to run any other ones. So the whole pipeline gets stuck. So we start looking through all the different logs that we have, because all our logs we took into Sumo Logic and we do log analysis there. And then I have to try to figure out where is my problem. Okay. And so at a certain point, you must have taken a step back and said, this is madness. What am I doing? How has my life come to this? And, and you said to yourself, there must be some alternative workflow. Yes. I think the hardest part was when I fixed my problem, the system was down for 12 hours. We had a lot of issues. We fixed it. I came to the CTO very happy. I told him, fixed everything's running you can feel okay this was after a spreadsheet email <laughs> yes we had a lot of spreadsheet emails he said the whole system's not working i worked on it it took me a while to fix i was happy and i saw in his face something bothered him i asked him what's the issue he said i understand yours works but now i have to figure out what else do i have to fix because you haven't been running for 12 hours and we sat for three days three days to figure out what processes are affected from my downtime? Oh. That was the point that I said too much. If the CTO doesn't know what was affected, that means nobody in the company knows. He's a hands-on guy. He knows everything that's happening. I asked him, okay, draw me the flows. We didn't know how to draw the flows in the system because nobody had it in front of them. It was a patch on patch. I know how to run after this. He knows how to run after that. So A goes after B after C, but nobody knows that when C falls, now we've got to backtrack all of them. 
Okay. And I think this leads into Airflow nicely. So let's take a step back. Uh, tell me what your knowledge of Apache Airflow was up to this point. Had you worked with Airflow at all, or did, were you conscious of Airflow? I knew of the name Airflow. I had never used it, and I have never written in Python until Airflow. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, actually, let's just cut to the chase. Why was Airflow a useful solution to this problem of not being able to visualize the flow of data, the flow of actions that were being taken across the application? We understood that we need an orchestration. We need something that would switch out the whole Chrome business. Again, I also wanted everything out of the serverless as far as I want everything in my Git process and I want to manage the processes. So I need some orchestration that will manage my process. I want to know that A is running after B because I want to visualize it and I want them dependent on each other. So if A stops, I want B to stop. And then when I fix A, B will automatically run and I won't have to think afterwards, wait, what's happening here? A has not been running for a long time, but B continues to run, it has invalid data. So we were looking for an orchestration And there are not a lot out there. There are. Airflow has the highest hype. The differences between the two are, so which languages are they written in? There's Luigi that's written in Java. Um, It hasn't really been updated that much. Some of the configuration files are still XML. So we were looking for something that was more advanced. And I was in a BI team which the BI team do not really know how to write Java-based and all sorts of standard languages. The script language was much more natural for them. So the Python sort of went together. And the Python also gives me an advantage of high deployment. In Java, you have to compile it, you have to package it, and then deploy it. Python with Airflow, you just copy a file to a folder, and it takes it. So you would describe Airflow as a workflow orchestration tool? That is how Airflow defines themselves, yes. Okay. What is a workflow orchestration tool? An orchestration tool means, and people do confuse it a lot with Jenkins, for instance, the orchestrator does not do the actual lifting of the data, or you don't want it to do it. You want it to orchestrate. So if I have a data flow process, and after my data flow process, I want to run different queries in BigQuery, Airflow is classic. It knows how to organize it. First do step A. If step A works, then do B, then do C. The actual processing of ABC is not done. The data itself, I don't bring it into Airflow. I trigger other processes. I can bring the data to Airflow, but it's less preferable. So that's the definition of the orchestrator is it it calls different things Mm -hmm. and it combines. So if, for instance, I need data from Amazon to Google, I can very easily bring it. Here I do need to lift the data because it's between clouds. So I'll have to bring the data into my da- into the Airflow from Amazon and then push it to Google. But part of the advantages of Airflow is their operators, which is open source. So all the providers have already written their providers in Airflow. So with a few bits of code, you can take from Amazon, from S3, and push it to Google. And you don't have to write that code. It's already there. You just have to combine it and build your puzzle, and then you have your whole orchestration. When did you realize that Airflow was going to be a useful tool? Or did you do like a proof of concept with Airflow to try to figure out if this was going to solve your problems? 
I asked around. I'm also, uh, we're part of Tikal. We have these meetings once a week and once a month. So I raised my issue when people brainstorm and throw all sorts of ideas. Have a look at this, have a look at that. I did some research and I did understand that we're looking for some sort of orchestration. We also needed, one of the requirements was that it should be uh, a server. We don't want to manage it ourselves. So I was looking for a SaaS solution. So Airflow is also very hype. Uh, we also wanted to make sure that it's open source and that I'm taking a winning horse. I don't want to take some product that after half a year, we have no support and it's dead. And all of those combined, Airflow seemed to be the magic solution. Again, no server bullet, nothing solves all your problems, but it did solve, I would say, 70 to 80% of our issues. Uh, a little bit of background on Airflow. We've done a couple shows with uh, Max, who started Airflow. So uh, we did one back in the day when he was at Airbnb. Uh, that's that's where the name comes from, Airflow, Airbnb. And, you know, Airbnb obviously has tons of data engineering problems. And, and Max had a background of having worked at Facebook, solving data engineering problems there. So then, he, you know, at Airbnb, he encountered similar problems to what he encountered at Facebook. And was able to to get the Airflow project off the ground. And then when he went to Lyft, obviously Lyft has probably even more data engineering problems than Airbnb. And uh, and he continued to, to work on and support the Airflow community to some degree. What I like about Max is, uh, you know, speaking of full stack, he really has a sense of from the lower layers of data infrastructure to the higher levels of how an operator wants to be using a data infrastructure support tool, I guess you would call it. You know, the UI, the UI for Airflow, I mean, I've never used Airflow. I've just seen screenshots of it and videos of it and stuff. It looks like the thing is designed well from top to bottom. It seems like that's part of why an ecosystem is really developed around it. Yes, I think it also has to do with, as you said, it was developed by people that had felt the, the issues at hand. I think almost every company has invented a small version of Airflow. Hmm. Everybody's written some sort of crone to, to run things. Most of them stop at the engine level to actually bring it to distributed and graphs where I can also understand what's happening. I'm not sure anybody except for Airflow has actually gotten to that level. And they still have a lot of work. It's not the end product. Right. You know, in most of these cases with the tool, it's like the world figures out that there is a need for a tool, like a workflow orchestration tool. And then at some point, people start talking, and then everybody realizes, oh, dang it, Google built something internally like five, ten years ago, right? In your archaeological dig of the world of workflow orchestration, did do you know, did, does, did Google have something? Did Google make something that was like, do they have a workflow orchestration tool or have they solved this problem in some other way? I'm not aware of a tool from Google. I do remember from my past, Microsoft about 10 years ago tried to do something like that. They even visualized it. It's actually very similar to a lot of other tools that are flow diagrams. So you have a flow, you draw your flow, and then you insert like serverless codes functions right. for each flow. But I think also the Python made a very big switch. And we're seeing a lot of tools with the same architecture as Airflow, where they have a platform 
that's built on Python and the community can add functions and it's very easy to be like a pluggable architecture. So I'm not sure if any of the others have something like that and they've built other solutions that some of them I'm aware of, but sometimes it takes time. It was like Facebook. At the beginning, everybody was like, what do I need that for? It's useless. It's, uh, and today, nobody can move without it. It took a few years till people understood the effect that it's having on the, on the whole community. Okay. Uh, let's make this concrete for people. How did Airflow solve some of the problems that you were encountering? So Airflow forces you to think of the flows. The building blocks of Airflow are a DAG. That's the direct acyclical graph. So I'm thinking graphs. And as I said, it's very easy. They even advance, they say, put your configuration in the Python itself. Don't separate configuration from Python. It's the same thing because you're an orchestrator. So you stop thinking about all the tools and you're thinking about your processes. What's the first thing I want to do? I need to bring my data. Okay, I'll trigger the data flow. When that finishes, what's the next process that I want to do? And when I sat with the CTO, he was like, okay, put in Airflow. I said, that's the easy part. Now sit with me and tell me the order of the things that you want. And it forced him to sit on a business level. You're right. What are the dependencies, the business dependencies that I want to do? And let's set it up in Airflow. And then I showed him the dashboard and you just see the business right in front of your eyes because there's a beautiful graph that shows it to you. And you can now manage it, including logs in one place, including Slack notifications directly to me. I don't need somebody else to start coming into the loop. And it simplified a lot of the thought process more than the actual technology. Now, you must have had some system that was managing the workflows from your transactional databases in Amazon and there was talking to the, I don't know, probably some ETL stuff in Google and some other data streaming stuff in Google. So you had some workflow that was being orchestrated. All right, electric guitars have started next door. Uh, <laughs> welcome to the live show of Software Engineering Daily. But you already had some workflow infrastructure set up, some workflow data pipeline set up. Uh, was was the Airflow stuff subsuming that, Was or was it replacing it? Every company invents their small Airflow. And we actually invented it twice, once in Java and once in Python. And that was part of the understanding, this has got to change. And the whole idea is to replace everything. We want one tool as much as possible, and everything was converted into Airflow. So we stopped using all these other services, and we're in the migration. We're at about, I'd say, 60% of migrating all our old processes onto Airflow. Okay, so during the migration, just just to be clear, are you replacing code that you had from the previous set of like scripts and ETL jobs and stuff, or are you just kind of uh, importing that code into the Airflow world? It depends on the ETL itself. All the ETLs that are SQL-based, we're just moving over. But some of the ETLs have actual logic that was written 
and now we're transferring it either to Python or into the framework of Airflow. So if the original was in Python, it's a bit of copy-paste. If the original was in Java, then some of it is being rewritten. But the fact we're moving to Airflow is also causing us to rethink. And sometimes the actual move to Airflow makes you redesign your systems, and some of it we just delete because we figured out we don't need it now. Okay, so if I understand correctly, the world before you start adopting Airflow is... You've got these cron jobs. The cron jobs get kicked off periodically. One of the cron jobs might be a Python script that says, okay, you know, it's been four hours. It's time to grab all the transactional data from Amazon and load it in BigQuery, do something in BigQuery, and then you spin down that that Python service that was spun up to, to do that ETL job. In the Airflow world, you move that code into Airflow so that it's consolidated with all the other random cron jobs and stuff. Correct. I would say the jobs are more or less divided into two. The majority are SQL-based, so it's ETL. I'm generating SQLs, which either test data or transfer data. And then I have the whole area of reports. I'll actually go over the transactions and send out emails to our customers with some sort of summary of what's happened with their transactions during that day. And that we also do on top of Airflow. Okay, cool. So there is this process by which you need to uh, move all these old scripts and cron jobs and stuff into into Airflow. Uh, so is that is that a, a, a gradual process, or do, do you have to do that all at once and then shift your entire workflow over to Airflow? We debated about it. We obviously wanted gradual because it's too big of a risk to do it in one. And the way we actually did it is by running them uh, in parallel. And the difference just was the target of the ETL. So at the beginning, the new system, we ran it on the side, and all its results were written to a different target. And then we compared the two targets, the current production and the new one, the staging on the side that's running the new code. After we were very fairly comfortable that the results are the same, we flipped them. So my old system still runs, but runs now to the temporary target, and the new one writes to the production target. And then as we gain confidence, we're going to shut down the old system and put it to rest. Mm. What problems has this solved for you, moving to Airflow? I would say the main problem is visual. I know what my tasks are. I know the order of the tasks. Airflow has also changed our thoughts. In other words, Airflow introduces another concept, which is immutable. You want to run your task at a specific time, and you want to be able to run it, if necessary, five times. Because when you run the task, the import to the task is the time frame. So Airflow manages that time frame. So let's say for whatever reason, Airflow was down for two hours, and I have a Chrome that runs every five minutes, it's not going to come up and run once. It's going to come up and run as if it ran every five minutes. And for each one, it will give me what's called backfill, the time frame of when it was supposed to run. And then I write my code based on that time. And then I can backfill all my data according to the time that I was missing, which is a very big concept that we changed in all our ETLs and that solves the problem of back data, of incorrect back data. So if I have a task that failed yesterday, after I fix it, I can rerun it on yesterday's data. 
So why, why is airflow so helpful with these backfill issues? Because by design, and again, that's the whole issue of airflow is the people that designed it, they designed it with the problems in production that they had. So if I have a task that fell yesterday and it takes me a day to fix, when I fix it and rerun that task, it has to run in the context of yesterday. So every task that's run in Airflow, the input to the task is the time frame. You never ask the computer what's the time. You don't say, I'm running now. No such thing. You get the time as an input parameter. And Airflow manages your time. What, what, can you explain that in more detail? I'm sorry, I don't, I'm having trouble understanding this time frame thing. Most people, when they write code, let's say I have to write a select, and I want to say, give me all the transactions that were done in the past hour. So I would say, let me look at the timestamp of the machine, subtract an hour, and that I'll put in my where statement on the SQL. So I'm always looking at the last hour from the current timestamp. Right. Airflow tells you don't do that. I will give you the time. The time is the 14th of May, 10 o'clock. In my where statement, I'll take the 14th of May at 10 o'clock, subtract an hour. So I'm never saying, what is the time? I'm never saying I'm running now. It says, run it 14th at 10 o'clock, then it'll say run at 14th at 11 o'clock. And if 12 o'clock fell, even if I run it on the 16th of May, it'll tell me run this code as if you're on the 14th of May at 12 o'clock. Hmm. When a failure occurs in an Airflow job or, I mean, how does Airflow deal with kinds of failures in the underlying system? Because Airflow, if Airflow is orchestrating these different jobs, Airflow is not... Airflow doesn't know what's going on in the underlying scripts that it's kicking off. So you could have errors and exceptions and things that might screw up your your data pipeline and you know that that can be really problematic if you have depends on relationships across the DAG. So how does Airflow handle failures? So they've actually given a framework as we keep on I repeating myself a bit, but they've thought of a lot of these issues. That's why I like Airflow. So, for instance, you have different scenarios. One is that I have a failure, not because it failed, but as far as my business logic, I don't want to continue the DAG. I've done two tasks. I don't want the third one to run but for a business reason. So, the way they've designed it is every task has a return value. And based on that return value, they evaluate whether or not to run the next task. So I can return false in my task, and it will not run the next task. So on the one hand, they're giving me a framework on the business level to handle not continuing my DAG. On the other hand, exceptions happen. Errors happen that I did not think of ahead of time. So they have built in any exception that happens. They know how to catch. And you can define by design, I want you always to try it three times. Maybe it was just a connection error, and if you retry it, it'll fix itself. If that still doesn't work, then they have other options. For starters, the whole DAG will fail. You'll see it in the GUI. And you have the option of callbacks. You can write a callback on the task level or on the DAG level and write whatever you want. So, for instance, we write every failure to a table in BigQuery for historical uh, uh, reasons, and we send a Slack message using Airflow, of course. And I do that generically on all my DAGs because I have the same callback for all of them. So the framework is very easy to enhance and add my own logic 
which is a layer on the platform for everything that's written without even me knowing what's going to be written in every specific DAG. Because we've decided all DAGs that fail, they need to be written to a database and send Slack. We're running up against time here. What other reflections do you have about the state of the broader data streaming and workflow orchestration and data pipeline space? You know, it's, it's clear that this project was a great case study in the state of the art of of average data pipelines. But any any other broader reflections, just you know, in tandem with with your project from other stuff you've been reading or stuff you've been studying? From what I see, it's the integration of of data sources. Obviously, we talked about Apache Beam. So the streaming is a whole industry that's moving very forward. And there are a lot of technologies out there for the streaming, whether it's Apache Beam, Kafka Streams, Spark Streaming. And then we have Airflow that's gapping another area, which is more of an area of orchestration of different services. And somehow we need to integrate all of these together. And that's still a missing part. I see it also in the cloud. They're trying to gap. How do I connect Amazon and Google together as far as the services on the service layer? So Google is coming out with some sort of service that I can connect and interconnect them. But as companies grow, their customers might demand, I want our services to run on Amazon and a different one on Google and maybe some of them even on-premise. And to be able to orchestrate different clouds and different technologies is becoming more and more complicated. You know, you were working on an application that was three years old, which is a very new application. And it sounds like they had some, like, even though you were getting paged by a spreadsheet that was doing these data discrepancy monitoring, that's still kind of like a futuristic, cool problem to have. I mean, most people do not have kind of the integration set up to do something that sophisticated, to set up this this kind of spreadsheet workflow. That's That's pretty different and unique. For many companies, like you think about legacy insurance companies, legacy banking companies, legacy agricultural technology companies, they've got these really old systems, and there's a perennial problem that they're dealing with You know, over the last, I guess, five or ten years, and particularly more acutely now that they all want to move to quote-unquote machine learning, the problem of the data platform. They want this, at least as I understand it, it this data platform, this place where I can go and get data from any place in the company. I can set up a stream from it easily. I can do machine learning on that data really easily because this is where so much untapped value lies. And, you know, like an insurance company has decades and decades and decades of old data, and it would be so great if their data scientists could access it and do interesting things with it while also being in compliance. And there seems to be a vision for this unified data platform. And one thing I'm trying to figure out is, will there be this unified data platform that sits over everything, like your data operating system? Or is it just going to be this patchwork of tools that we're going to gradually cobble together over to, you got Airflow over here, you got Beam over here, you know, just patching these things together and slowly figuring it out? If I understand you correctly, I think the word is data lake. And that's the new buzzword that they're trying to get to. Also, Google I've seen, and also Amazon. They have a a Tena and all sorts of products. More or less, it's a catalog. It's a catalog of my data. Data catalog. So I have all my data in this data lake, which is more or less storage. I put it all into the storage, unstructured, 
and then I'll have pipelines that will structure my data and give me all sorts of materialized view. They're starting to come out with platforms, but the problem here from what I see is the added value is only when they know what the data is. All these platform, all these catalogs, they try to scrape metadata on your data from the name of the file, from the structure, and then they try to help you out. But there's actually, what we're missing is a Google index for my data lake. Today I can search in Google and find whatever I want very quickly on the internet. If I have my data lake, there's no easy way to just search and find things there. Data discovery, I think, is now one of the biggest buzzwords that they're trying to solve. Have you seen any data discovery platforms that have been interesting to you? I know Google, again, they're all starting. They're at the very beginning. Yeah. I think something, the actual word discovery just reminded me. I think Google has something called discovery, but they are very beta. They're at the very beginning where they give you basic information. So they have all these catalogs where they know how to scrape the information and run the information and try to take and extract. And you can map them and then you can run SQLs if you know yeah. the structure. But I still need something much more intuitive I mean, that's, I think, we feel we lost something when we went to the web. When I had all my information on my desktop, we had then Microsoft, I, re I don't remember the name, they had some sort of indexing that indexed your computer. And I had all sorts of programmings that were using Lucene, Lucene Index to index your computer, so you don't have to remember where anything is on your computer. Yeah. You just put in the text and it right. finds it. It's a PDF, a Word document, sure. whatever. I need that for my data lake. Something you should look into, we did a show recently about Amundsen, which is a data discovery platform out of Lyft. It's basically what you're describing. It's an index. You know, Lyft just has so much data, right? Because it's a ride-sharing platform. And I'm, I'm sure Uber has, you know, even more data because they're across a larger swath of area. But it is what you're describing. It's if I'm a data engineer or an operations person or a data scientist, and I'm looking for cool data sets to utilize within my company, I enter a little search query into Amundsen, and I can find the, the data sets I need and figure out the permissions for them. And anyway, I, I mean... I'm with you. It, like, it does seem to be a, an emergent piece of the of the data platform. Well, Chaim, it's been really great talking, and I'm very grateful for the, the talk that you gave and the time we've had to talk together. Yes, I've actually enjoyed it very much. It's my first podcast. Okay. And You're a natural. <laughs> greatly enjoyed it. Okay, thank you very much. Wow.